Jan, you're here. I am, I am, David, and so are you. I am, strangely <laughs> enough. And you know what? We've got authors. But then they're here too, on Isn't time. Fantastic? It's great. Here you go. Okay, Sophie Teague changes schools in year 12. Sophie Teague, a character she wants to start again with new friends who don't know about her past. Well, this could be just another teenage story, but it has Rebecca Lim as the author. So, along with good writing, we expect the unexpected. Welcome back, Rebecca. Thanks very much for having me, Jan and David. There are certain stereotypes at Sophie's new school. There's teachers controlling through sarcasm, bullies, victims and a hot guy. Oh, let's start, Rebecca, with hearing from page 34 about Jordan. But even the diehard jocks, the death metal freaks, the tech heads, the skateboarders, the self-starting entrepreneurs and the dorks who ran in packs for safety thought Jordan Haig was untouchably cool. No one except his two besties knew anything about him and they never spilled their guts. There was a mystery at the core of him that no, everyone could see but nobody could fathom. <gasps> yeah, well, when you're 18, awkwardness goes with the terrain, but not with Jordan. He was hot. Why did Sophie want to start over at a new school? Um, what I usually try to do with my um, heroines is give them a little bit of a tortured back history. So she's changed schools because both of her parents have been killed in a freak accident. Her father used to be a bikey and they went. His, her mum and dad went for a weekend jaunt down to Gippsland and were taken out by a car on their mm. way back. So she's wanted to start again because she's full of grief. She's done some crazy things at, at her old school and she'd like to start again. Look, I thought just that paragraph of you writing about her grief was really quite something. I think you really got in the head of just, well, how kids grieve. Let's hear that one too, Rebecca. It made me a little crazy. I'd sit for hours inside the built-in wardrobe in their bedroom just so that the air would smell of them. I'd talk to complete strangers at random, hoping they'd ask me how I was and then spring my tragic story on them, only to watch those same people run away in horror. I cried in public places and walked the streets around the star after dark, practically begging to be murdered because the dark was where they were. They were nowhere in the light. Nowhere in the light. Nowhere. Just in the dark. And I suppose it, it's at this stage we should tell you, say the title of Rebecca Lim's new book is After Light. Not After Death. Afterlight. Sophie's home is in the Star Hotel, and that's where she does the wandering around. Now, she's grown up in a pub, and she, well, she's pretty streetwise, really, isn't she? She is, but she's also kind of naive and very nice. Yeah, she, well, she's known as the, the girl that would do anything to help anybody. In fact, um, Sophie's mum, one of the last things that she can remember her mum telling her was, any creature comes to you for help, you bloody help them because I was that creature once. So this, uh, her parents, Josh, Joss and Angel, her dad Joss and mum Angel. So we do know that, well, they weren't, they were great parents, but they had an interesting past. That's right. Um, her dad actually managed to get himself out of a, out of a bikey group um, and took her mum with him and she was a tabletop dancer. So I've introduced a few uh, yeah. different elements into a young adult <laughs> novel, which is what I usually try and do. Okay. Then um, our Sophie has a visit from Eve. I think you better tell us about Eve. Well, Eve... Um, 
it's it's interesting when she's trying to change schools. She sees a news article on television that um, reports how and a, a bikey kingpin has tried to shoot his girlfriend to death in the street in Melbourne. And it turns out that this woman, who also is a exotic dancer, um, ends up being the apparition that appears in her bedroom. So she recognises her from the news article about two weeks before the apparition actually appears. Now, the apparition just stays there. And Sophie starts getting visions. And this apparition, Eve, she calls her, uh, gets her to do a few odd things. Well, first of all, she gets the vision of a school, a kid and a car. And she just knows that if she doesn't do something about this vision, Eve is just going to stand there at night and haunt her. So she, she sort of puts it all together and what does she find? Um, she ends up being set a, a multitude of tasks by this ghost. So the first task is to save a small child who's about to be abducted um, on his way home from school. Um, the second test that she gets given is to save an elderly man who's about to be mown down by a ute in a junction um, in an inner city suburb. So she has to try and determine where she's supposed to be and who she's supposed to save from these very bizarre, quite fractured visions that, that Eve gives her. And the third test is uh, she has to go and basically save, um, not that I'm using this term pejoratively, a crazy cat lady who's also <laughs> a gold-hoarding miser from um, being eaten alive by her own pets. So that's the first series of tests that, that Storky gets given. And, of course, when she has to especially save this old woman, she has to bring in serious help like the medicos and all of this. And this catches the eye of the media. Rebecca Lim, you're not. <laughs> I like the way you wrote up this. I had a lot of fun with um, a lot of the paparazzi um, starting to follow her and trying to get shots of um, Sophie's grandmother through the window of the pub in her shapewear in the mornings when she got out of bed. So um, I had a lot of scenes where um, Sophie's out on the street trying to collect the newspaper in her nightgown and being mobbed by reporters and things like that, and then just having a bit of a poke at the media because it's always fun and you know they can handle it. So. <laughs> And there's things like, you know, sort of the, there's a whole paranormal, paranorm, because media are interested in this type of stuff too. Oh, aren't they? they love that. So I sort of, um, I had them sort of linking uh, Sophie to, you know, serial killers in, in Western Australia from the 1980s and trying to get her to end the war on terror single-handedly, <laughs> that kind of stuff with her newfound powers. So it was just, it was just a lot of fun to put all that together. And also sort of people coming to have her lay her hands on them. That's right. You know, people sort of like wanting to take selfies and oh. touched and things like that. So, look, um, Eve realises, oh, Sophie realises that Eve has got her on um, a treadmill to do things, to help her. And to, until she realises what Eve, this, this haunting image, actually wants her to do is help her find where she is. That's right. Help, you know, and her murderer. And, of course, who comes to help poor old Sophie with all of this? But the hot guy from school. The hot guy from school. Who happens to also see dead people. So it's all, all very sort of nicely linked together. Well, this uh, Eve has also not only just been in Jordan's visions, but been speaking to him and wanting him to help her. And then we find out about Jordan. And this is an interesting bit that I've learned. Thank you once again for doing all the uh, research on this. A little bit about this afterlife stuff, this paranormal stuff. Jordan talk, talks about his mother being a clairaudient. What's that? Um, someone who, well, it makes me sound like a, I probably sound like a rampant loony because in all of my books, there's someone who can do something uh, slightly out of the ordinary. But a clairaudient person is someone who can hear things from, you know, 
deceased people. So Jordan's mother can hear things, but she can't see things. But Jordan can see things, smell things, hear things and taste things. So he's kind of like even more gifted than his mother is. And Sophie has only like a, a portion of his skills. So they kind of try and team their skills together to try and solve what Eve wants them to do. Now, uh, Sophie's dad coming out of the... Um the, the biker gangs had a lot of tattoos and so does Jordan but Jordan's tattoos when she actually gets to get, look at them closely are a little bit different they're a bit protective actually so his are uh, sort of extracts from magical books called grimoires which he's had put on his skin and he the reasoning behind it is someone a pivotal character in this um, who has a bit of a mysterious past mm. um, has told him that if you can use your pain to block out the things that are trying to come at you and give you messages and ask you to help them. Um, that's why you get these painful tattoos because when you touch them in a certain order, you'll remember how painful it was and you can keep these things you know, away from you. Oh, is this all your imagination or is this for real? A teensy bit. I think. <laughs> a teensy bit. It's a little I bit of so. <laughs> so um, he actually, Jordan gets to prove some of his ability to contain um, spirits from below in a hotel room. And this is quite funny because, you know, this what what happens with all of these incredible events is Sophie's humour, which is written by Rebecca. <laughs> and in the, in the hotel room, the floorboards are starting to warp, and there's a spirit who wants to come out, and he's threatening. He's and until uh, Jordan gets him back down under the floorboards, but. Why is this spirit upset? The spirit's upset because underneath the bedroom that he died in and he still lives in, uh, Sophie's grandmother has installed the sports bar, which is full of pokey machines, and he really dislikes the noise. So he's warping the floorboard slowly to indicate his displeasure at being put in this bedroom above the pokies. Right. So, it's, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? <laughs> Look, I just loved it. I really was a page turner for me. And what I really liked is some of the plot follows really the true happenings in life. You know, the, the motorbike gangs, the mateship and the thuggery there, but also the Good Samaritan murder. That's right. I mean, a lot of a lot of these uh, the books that I write are usually sort of set off by some kind of cold case or case. So, um, you know, Elizabeth Smart, the shooting that happened in um, uh, William Street, which was you know close to the text offices, all those kinds of things kind of filter into the starting point for a lot of my stories. So, so that's why there's sort of hopefully a ring of authenticity to them. The novel ends deliberately ambiguously. So, does this mean that we might follow Sophie into? Another into novel? where she's gone. Um, possibly, but it depends on whether or not um, anyone wants to read uh, a sequel. Oh. So, I, I mean, I've, I've sort of got a lot of things on the boil, but if anyone really loves this book, they could always send an email to text and <laughs> let them know, and, and I'll well, get, get onto it I, a little I'd bit more quickly. I'd quite like to know. I'd quite like to know myself. Now, the last time Rebecca Lynn was in to uh, publish or not, she was talking about her book, The Astrologer's Daughter, and now that took you into different areas of research. That was into an astrological chart. John Doan poetry and um, uh, Chinatown and another good read and you won the CBCA that's the Children's Book Council Book of the Year award for that one No I was actually, um, that would be lovely if I'd won but no the the short list is actually being um, finalised at the moment uh, or decided at the moment but I was actually an honour book 
which is lovely in any case because it's it's the long list for the year so it's just wonderful to be included on that well i'm not surprised because i think your writing is really tight and year 12 can be interesting and boy oh boy but these girls these are feisty women both in uh, in the astrologer astrologer's daughter and also in afterlight i enjoyed them you do gutsy girls thanks very much (laughs) okay so of course i've been speaking with rebecca lim about her book afterlight published by text and you're on 3cr published or not now i've got a bit of crime for you reading the unbroken line by alex hammond we soon learn that crime actually pays if of course you control some aspect of it. So, Alex, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks for having me, David. Now, this is a crime novel where, with the protagonist, Will Harris, um, which is, yeah, it's the second crime novel in the series. What were the challenges of uh, writing the second instalment? Oh, they were uh, numerous challenges. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, there's this, uh, you know, desire to, you know, do it, write a better book than the previous one and, and, and try to grow yourself as a writer. So there's always a sort of self uh, expectations that you place on yourself, your own yeah, your own expectations. And then there's a, a sense of the readership previously. So, you know, how much do you put into the book that acknowledges the, the previous novel and and builds on what they may or may not be expecting, you know. Um, well, let's pick up on that then, because you've basically got several threads uh, from your first book, Blood Witness. Will is recovering, Will Harris, who's the, the main protagonist. So he's been injured previously, and he gets injured again. He does. He does. Yes, for a solicitor, he seems to get in a lot of a lot of fights. Um, and, and that's partly because I enjoy the uh, hard-boiled um, sort of crime genre where the protagonist is often beaten up and, and, and well we've, we've got some serious violence yes in um, this. <laughs> but yes yeah absolutely um then you've got nicholas aaron now he was a character from the previous novel who will was trying to put away but what's happened there well now he's uh, found himself in a situation where he has to defend um this guy that he he absolutely despises um and he has to put his legal principles you know, carry them forwards and, and use those to guide him through, but at the same time he wants to be done with them as quickly as possible. But this raises an interesting question about legal principles, so to speak, because you've also got the uh, Vanix and Kaya who are, to whom Will is indebted, and they're a crime organisation. Yes, yes, they're another one of the threads that comes through, although I will say the book, you know, is, is intended to stand alone, so... Um, but yes, they... They, he is in, in trouble with a crime family and um, so he's being torn in all sorts of different directions and, and really, you know, it's, it's, it's a way to explore the mindset of this lawyer who, who has to balance his, his ethical principles alongside his own personal dislike and the pressures that he's feeling and is, and is, and is wanting to be out of a, a bad situation for him long term. Because there is a, a reference in there about Will's character not being suited to the law in terms of him being a little too emotional. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, in fact, a judge says to him that he probably would have made a better social worker. So, um, and that's very much. He's a. He's a quite a. Um, uh, he's empathic. I think is the best way to describe. So, do you it. have to be a bastard to be a lawyer? What are you saying about the law? <laughs> oh, no, not at all. Can not I, at all. Can I just interrupt there and say I used to be one? <laughs> that was quite nice. How many lawyers no, becoming no. writers? <laughs> there's hope for lawyers oh, yet. There's there's plenty of lawyers who are writers. No, not at all. Um, I think that I think there is a 
there is a mindset that can be required in commercial and, and certain areas of the law, but there's plenty of examples of community legal service and, and legal practitioners in the community law who are fantastic and, and very empathic. And, and a lot of pro bono work Absolutely. being done for those Absolutely. that are underrepresented. Um, but one of the elements that comes through is this notion of how close the law is to being corrupt in many ways. Will is being investigated for unethical practices but at the same time, he's asked to represent the son of a judge. What's going on there? Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that is, again, I mean, in a, I think in a good crime thriller, you, you, you really lay it on thick for your protagonist and, and, and <laughs> up the ante. But um, he's that investigation could be argued is, is perfectly justified and based on his actions. Um, it's that real, I think, is an interesting question for readers who don't have a f background in the law and can drill down into the details, but this idea of the balance between what is just and what is the law. So what is, you know, and, and Will tries to follow this sort of justice thread through, and that, that means occasionally he does in fact break the law, which makes him a, a, a how, bit of a hypocrite. How often are lawyers placed in that sort of situation? Oh, you know, I, I, I think less so than in this book. <laughs> um, I, I would think that, you know, good drama is obviously, you know, escalated and heightened from reality, I think. <laughs> Another thread you pick up on is history. I mean, in Blood Witness, we had a, a precedent that went back um, to the 1800s. Here, you go back to the Rum Corps. Um, what's this interest in history? I guess it's playing with... I think it sits quite well alongside the law. So in the first novel, yes, there, it was a precedent so you can show that history and the law sit, sit side by side. But it's this idea of legacy and where our um, where aspects of, I guess, social control come from, um, for want of a better way. I mean, it's a little bit a little bit political in that respect. It's asking, you know, where do our institutions of power come from? How do they arise? And, and, and examining the sort of the histories that we're told about things and, and whether that's, you know an honest history. Well, because you've got something uh, stemming from this history, which you've uh, brought, uh, well, you've related to the Rum Corps going back to the foundations of Australia, mm. and it's the Covenant. Now, what can you tell us about the Covenant? Well, not not too much with, with, with risk of, uh, of spoiling Giving away, the book. Yeah. Uh, but yes, it's, it's a further exploration about where power resides and, and whether those people in, powers, in power are, are, are actually ethical, principled, not misusing their power to um, their own ends. And, and, and I drew this from, a, um, from an actual event that took place in Melbourne not too long ago. Well, can you tell us a little sure. about that? Um, and you've got your notes. I noticed uh, the legal mind at work, not wanting to say anything uh, that could get you into trouble. <laughs> no, that's right. I want to be precise about what I say. Um, but yeah, back in 2011, the um, Victorian Ombudsman investigated this group called the Brotherhood, and that is their, that was their name that they called themselves. So I would have thought that would have raised a few alarms initially. Any, any group calling themselves that was probably going to draw some attention. And they included uh, police, senior police, some MPs, some lawyers, um, and they would meet for lunches, um, which were essentially presented as business lunches. But the ombudsman uh, in their investigation had a whistleblower that um, raised concerns that um, uh, confidential information was being exchanged. Had, and the ombudsman ultimately found that, um, couldn't prove any of this, but, but did give a, a recommendation um, that you know, government, public sector agencies and, and their officers didn't engage um, with these sorts of groups where there was the potential for exploiting information. In fact, the police union vehemently challenged that, um, but it was a, a great seed for an idea for a book. I thought, well, let's take this 
you know, probably ultimately fairly, you know, benign, benign circumstance. Although you know they, ra- they did raise questions and and amplify that through history, through the lens of history, back to um, this this idea of it, you know, a legacy that extends back in time to this group, the Covenant. But it can also uh, serve on a domestic level as well. If you've got a prosecutor and a defender, male, female, this has been a trope that's been often used in films and such like, uh, they're having a relationship, and but is information being exchanged? Is it unethical? Exactly, exactly. And, I mean, if you look to the, the clubs, various clubs in Melbourne, um, like the, uh, the Savage Club or the, um, the Melbourne Club, I mean, they have very strict rules within those clubs about what they're allowed to discuss, but there's nothing to say that people who make friendships in those organisations outside of those clubs might not occasionally exchange information. I'm not saying that that does happen, but, you know, it does. you do think... And then I sort of build those ideas in, so, again, they feed into history and, and these ideas about, you know, mostly where this male privilege sits. And you also do have a reference to a club in there. You don't name it, but no, no. was there any particular... <laughs> Club with paraphernalia on the walls. Oh, and such you know, like? you, you, I, I had done some research at the time, and then you occasionally see photos pop up online and then rapidly come down with the Savage Club or the Melbourne Club or, or the Athenaeum. But yeah. these are sort of institutions of influence in the, some ways. They certainly are. I mean, it's I don't know. Me personally, I always get a bit suspicious when historians downplay their significance. I go, well, what's going, what's going on there? But yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you've also got well, you've got an historical precedent there. You've also got another situation where the son of a judge, Saxon, uh, is being, how shall we say, investigated for bullying and the criminal aspects associated with bullying, which is a fairly new sort of area in the law. Yeah, it's it's a relatively new area. Um, they extended the extorting provisions under the Crimes Act to include bullying um, in about 2007, I think. And this is called Brody's Law, uh, which was based off a case where a, a, a waitress was significantly bullied that she committed suicide. And it was, it was quite, you know, obviously a tragic event and shouldn't have happened. And I guess, um, yeah, and then law reform, as it does, ca- caught up to that and has since subsequently addressed it. So I thought that this was an interesting idea to explore. Um, you know, um, from the perspective too, because obviously, well, maybe, <laughs> obviously without saying, I, I'm in no ways a fan of bullying, but then to give yourself the sort of um, exercise of writing from the perspective of a lawyer who has to defend a bully or a potentially a, a potential bully and how they would go around doing that. It's a, it's a thought experiment that can be, you know, was was interesting and challenging to write. Also, how do you prove it? How do you know? As in one of Saxon's excuses is that this was a dare sort of thing. Yeah. How much is of that of a dare is bullying and all of these areas that come into play? Yeah. In this specific incident, incident, there was some some suggestion that it was a, a reciprocal exchange of of of, um, of material online that was you know. Um, so there's a sort of cyber bullying aspect to it as well. So. You've got the historical aspect, you've got the new aspect. Let's get into the structure of the novel now. I mean, all of these threads actually interweave, uh, which is where we get into the story. We've got Will's partner, Chris Miller, who's linked to a Brownlow medalist who's died of an overdose. (laughs) Uh, When I wrote it, I I I thought this may become topical again, and lo and behold. (laughs) (laughs) Well, football is topical. I don't think a novelist could write what's happening in football at the moment. No, you, you, people would think that it was that it was extreme and fantasiful if you if you went, if you went that far. Absolutely, but yes, I mean there are a number of threads, um, as as you pointed out, David, and um, I guess 
tr- a lot of the time in a sort of um, crime novel, there's often you know two cases that the uh, detective protagonist will discover actually you know um, dovetail together and, and end up being the same case or something well like you've that. got so, more than two cases which is where the the mastery is coming in of the interweaving because you've got uh, at the very beginning of the book which fits into the convention of the sort of uh, crime novel where you have uh, an excessive uh, amount of violence and crime and uh, such like Will and his partner Eva are attacked and told to back off but Will doesn't know what it's about. No, by sinister men in the Burnley Tunnel. <laughs> yes. Well, that's the other thing, Melbourne setting as well. Yes, it's, yeah, which is a lot of fun to write set in Melbourne. Yes, they, uh, well, it's, it's, it's very kind of you to say. Um, the, the multiple threads was really a challenge I set to myself, you know, to try to, to draw together, um, you know, more than just two threads and, and try to not make it as obvious where we were going. But then once you get to the end point, you can sort of see the... Um, the connections there. And that will be for our listener and the reader to discover. I'm not going to mm. tell how all of these interweave, but they do. And some of them come as a bit of a surprise because Chris Miller, who's uh, Will's uh, partner, is a bit of a, would you call him a ne'er-do-well or how would you describe him? Uh, yeah, he's, he's, he certainly is. A, um, he enjoys living his life the way that he likes to. He's a bit of a, um, a, a rat bag. And there are drugs involved there. There are, yes, yes. And the partnership uh, could see the uh, fledgling business legal practice flounder. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that's, um, you know, again, as I was saying, just keep shoveling it onto the the main characters. (laughs) (laughs) And now they're financially threatened to to no longer have a law law practice. You've got then uh, Will, as I said, representing the son of a judge. Um, and you think, well, that's an extraneous sort of extra, except it links then to these, uh, shall we say, pathways of influence that are going on in the book. Absolutely. Um, and, and, yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things, you know, in, in the same time that there's this question around a, a, a group, this covenant, and, and what they're up to and they're using wielding power. Will, on the other side of the fence, has been, you know, approached through his networks to 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 represent a judge's a judge's son. So, it's, and this network is it's where- again exposing the sort of comp- compromise that may be there, and and you know, what's the difference? What's the barrier between all that? And and this network is where things of uh, undue influence can come into play, which is legally unethical and such like. It's certainly an, an area where all lawyers have to watch themselves. So. so how were you able to balance all these threads? What were the challenges there? Uh, I, there? I had to plot the book out. I mean, I'm a real plotter. I had to sit down and work out how everything was going to marry together at the end and then, and then revisit it extensively throughout just to make sure I wasn't losing the thread. And yeah. where does Will Harris go from here? Again, he's having to recover physically. Um, what have you got in store for him in the next instalment? Uh, there's a, we, we pick up a few of the threads there um, from this book, um, mm. but certainly we explore a, f- a few things. He represents a, a, a priest who's, um, who's com- performed an exorcism and it's resulted in a death. So. Oh, right. So you've got mm. this all ready... It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And how many I, how many threads are in this new one? Oh, not as many. This one plays with a different uh, a different challenge. Yeah, yeah, for me as a writer, but not not quite as many threads this time around. But there are endless challenges in the legal world, and uh, whether crime pays. The book is the Unbroken Line. The uh, author is Alex Hammond, and it's a Penguin publication. 
Jack. Well, I, I'm just going to pick up on a few things that we have in common this morning. The, the, the bullying track through Rebecca's uh, book and also set in Melbourne. It's, 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 isn't it great when you read something? We have the stalactite restaurant you know, in, in the Greek How area. How often do you get to put that in a book? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and sex shops in the seedy back areas. And, well, the Savage Club, but it's not mentioned as such. Oh. Uh, or just the, the notion of clubs, the streets of Melbourne, yeah. uh, which come to the fore, the Burnley Tunnel, mm. accidents in the Burnley Tunnel, footballers and their behaviour, which is um, ripe for uh, for sort of uh, fiction. Railway stations and, and the trains going through the backs, back ends of buildings and, and, and houses, that's that's a part in, in, in my author, Rebecca Lim's Afterlight. Well, I think we better round things up now. We've got ruminations coming in, so this has been published or not on 3CR. Thank you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.